Uh, I thought I would mention just a little bit about uh, my ministry with the chaplains before I uh, came to the time of reading the scripture. I appreciate this church and, and your support of me and that work. Um, traveling a lot, uh, when, when Daryl was praying about traveling mercies, uh, I want you to know that I take that to heart. Um, out of the next uh, 46 days, 23 of them are going to be on the road. We've already done a two-week trip and a one-week trip. Uh, Hazel's getting to travel with me, which is a real blessing. And, um, and so we've got a lot of places to go. I'm getting ready to go to Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Detroit, and Chicago. And then coming back and going to Alabama. And then, you know, during the cold weather, I'll hopefully I'll be going to Florida and Arizona. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll see how that works. But I'm excited about what the Lord is doing in this ministry. Um, I'm going to, I can't remember if I told you this story or not, if, if maybe some people here haven't heard this story, but one of the, this weekend I had, yesterday I had a call from uh, one of the chaplains who's in the Alabama State Prison System, and, and together with Birmingham Theological Seminary, and uh, which is part of Briarwood, the big PCA church in Birmingham, and under the, the umbrella of the state of uh, Alabama Department of Corrections, they've come up with a ministry plan to help reduce the, the frequency of prisoners being released and coming back in. That's called recidivism. You know, for, you know, when the prisoners leave, they hope that they stay out and don't come back. But quite often, there's a high rate of, of prisoners who return back into prison. And so um, they, they have this vision of doing ministry inside the prisons with inmates. And so they have identified, I think it's 12 to 14 inmates from all the prisons in the state, and they've moved them to one facility. And this chaplain is going to be in charge of helping them, along with Birmingham Theological Seminary professors coming down to get a theological education for two years. All these men have at least seven years left in their sentence, and then they're going to go back to their original institutions for five years and do ministry with other inmates after they've been theologically trained. And I just get goosebumps thinking about that. And they've, they've got the first group together. You know, this is, hopefully will be an ongoing process of things that they do. And just to be a, a little part of that, uh, and to talk with him yesterday, and he's got a need that's come up, and I'm going to be helping him with that and maybe going to his Presbyterian meeting in October and, and, and all sorts of things that, that are just really exciting. And I just praise the Lord for uh, calling men to be chaplains and for allowing me the opportunity around the country to be a part of what this uh, ministry is beginning to be like. So thank you for your help and support of us and able to do that. So now I'm going to read the scripture, which uh, was in your bulletin. Too many pieces of paper up here. Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for your promises, 
for your amazing grace and love and mercy shown to us and giving us a Savior, adopting us as your children, and calling us to be your own. Lord, I pray that you would, by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, bless the preaching of this word today to all of our hearts, that we might glorify you and be encouraged in our walk with you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God providentially uh, led me to preach on Heidelberg Catechism question number one, which is on page eight. Um, Sometimes it's hard when you're an occasional preacher to figure out what you're going to preach on. And Heath graciously allowed me, I don't know, it was Wednesday or so or Thursday this week, I can't remember. I, I just couldn't come up with a particular text. The Lord often lays in my heart a particular text or an idea. Like, remember from a month ago when we saw in the back of the truck, Romans 15, 13? You know, sometimes God speaks very boldly in that. Uh, but this time is a little bit of a challenge. And then when I, I communicated to, to Heath that this is what I was going to do, and I sent him a copy of the, uh, of the text, he said, well, that's okay. It's already in the bulletin. Uh, that's, our, that's our affirmation of faith for this Sunday. And that's, I, I, I want to share that because I, I see that as a, as a provision of God for me. Maybe not yet for you. We'll see how the, how the rest of this hour goes. But for me to uh, affirm and that as I waited upon him to, to guide me and direct me, he had already moved ahead in what uh, was the plan here. So, uh, Lord willing, this will be uh, a, a glorifying thing to him and a blessing to you. The idea that we are not our own. That's, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Our human nature and our world around us really don't like that concept in, in some regard. Uh, that, that we... We want to be autonomous. We want to be free. We want to do whatever we think is right. Uh, the, the world in particular, the philosophy of the world this day and age is, is such that uh, individual rights and freedoms are, are paramount in, in focus and in influence and in uh, priority. And to think that really as believers we don't really even belong to ourselves. We have someone who has purchased us. We have someone who the scriptures very plainly say owns us if we come to the place of faith. That helps us understand the passage where it says if we are to save our lives, we must lose them. There is a sense when we must forfeit our own desires, our own will, our own plans, our own thinking, our own judgments, our own understanding of things, surrender those to Christ so that he might be our Lord and that he might be our Savior, that he might be the one after whom we walk and follow. How we get there sometimes is a, is a strange process. I want to share with you a little bit about my testimony. Some of you may have heard, heard it, maybe not. My mom and dad divorced when I was four months old. 
And, and I, have rec- I have recently found out that I was a crisis pregnancy, um, which, you know, when you stop and think about it, that's probably not a big surprise. Uh, I always thought I was the first child in, um, in my dad's life, but actually he had two other children um, before me, one other, children, one other child before me, two marriages before he married my mom. Um, and I was raised by a single mom pretty much all my life, in and out of my grandparents' homes and back, and then she uh, theoretically was married five times. Uh, I'm not sure she was married any of those extra times, perhaps one other. And just a, a life of chaos. I went to four different schools in the first grade in Little Rock. I mean, it was just one neighborhood to the next neighborhood to the next neighborhood to the next neighborhood. In the third grade, I remember having to go to school in a taxi. This was before the busing. And my mom had to go to work, and so she always called the taxi. I had a daily taxi ride to third grade. I have a brother who's a year and a half younger than me, grew up in the same environment. I think he, too, was a crisis pregnancy, though his, I'm not sure his father actually married my mom and all of that. So you're getting a picture here, right? A few years ago when I was at Children's Hospital, we did an exercise about how people grow up with certain privileges and, and things in life. Uh, just to get an appreciation for the diversity uh, of people, primarily then as we were working at Children's, but, but you know, in all of life, the people we deal with, we live with and walk with. And so the, the leader of this group would ask a question. If, if it was true, you'd take a step forward, and sometimes if, it, if it, the answer was true, you'd take some steps backwards. So it depends on what the question was. And so we all started with, with one line across a, a large room, and uh, if you, the questions that moved you forward were things that were positive in your life, like uh, you had books in the home, uh, you had certain, uh, you know, your, your family was an educated family, you know, those types of things that, that if you stop and think about the, the, the elements of growing up that are positive and help you move forward. Other things were if you, if you didn't have books or if you... Uh, didn't, uh, can't remember your birthdays and things of that nature, you would move back. At the end of the exercise, I was the furthest back along with one other woman. That the two of us grew up in a situation, an atmosphere that was uh, underprivileged. I mean, we, we had challenges and difficulties in our lives that others didn't have. And I stand before you today and say that it's because of the grace and the mercy and the power of Christ that I'm even here. My brother got into drugs, died in a car accident in 87. He chose a way of coping with our growing up, which I think I look back on it and say that was a legitimate way to cope with our childhood was to escape it. I found out when I was 20 that my grandmother and my aunt in California had been praying for me since I was born. 
And looking back, I see that God's hand was always on me. The idea that we are chosen before the foundations of the world sometimes is a difficult concept to accept and to understand. I see it at work in my life. That before I was born and the circumstances of all it was that, that brought me into being, one that I wasn't aborted, and on and on and on, I see God's hand on my life throughout. It helps me to come to realize that when I became a Christian, when I was a senior in high school, up until then, no real influence, no real presence in church. Um, in the fifth grade, the Gideons used to give out those little green Bibles. Sometimes they were different colors, but little Bibles. Uh, I brought mine home and immediately hid it in the storage room because I knew we didn't have Bibles in the house. That was not something that you, you, you just wouldn't bring it into the house. So I would sneak out to the storage room and read it. You know, where did that come from? Why is it that, that I did not follow the suit of my brother into the destructive behaviors that, that he found himself immersed in? It's because I wasn't my own even then. I'm not my own now. And I think if we as believers can, can wrap our minds and our hearts around this concept, it's, it's so freeing and revolutionary that it will make a dramatic difference in our lives now and in, indeed in the hope that we have for eternal life. Because if we're not our own, who owns us? Who is it that owns us? Who is it that is in charge of our lives? Who is it that is the sovereign king who providentially works all things? Who is it that orders every step? It's the Lord God. And there is absolutely nothing that can thwart that. There's no power, there's no ability, there's nothing that can change that. And so if you would turn to to page 8 in your bulletin, because I'm going to essentially walk through this catechism. It's a powerful one. And for many people, it's their favorite catechism question. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563. Just 46 years after Martin Luther hammered his thesis on the, on the door there. So the church is growing. The church is wanting to teach its people what it is that the Bible says because that's a lot of what was going on in the Reformation. The Roman church kept those things that the Bible taught. They, they distorted them primarily, but the people weren't able to really learn them on their own and to apply them and understand them and live them out. And so now as part of the Reformation, the church is saying everyone... Everyone sitting out there needs to know these things, these things that God teaches in the Scripture. And so the very first question, the very first question, what is our comfort, what is our only comfort in life and in death? There's a presumption there. The presumption is we need comfort. We live in a fallen world. 
A world that's not right. A world where there is pain and disease and death. Where there's destruction, where there's broken relationships, where there's distrust. It's a world that does not function the way it was created to function. Even our very genetic code, I believe, has been affected by the fall. Nothing is right. We have genetic defects. We have diseases. We have mosquitoes that kill us. We have all sorts of things that are just not right. And then in our own relationships, selfishness, anger, bitterness, hatred, violence, whatever it might be that destroys us and, dis- and pulls us apart. Our world is a fallen world, and in that context, we need comfort. We need to be comforted in that. So in life, what is your only comfort? Where do you find it? Do you find it in yourself, in the world, in another, in money, in power, in influence? That's where a lot of people seek That's where they think comfort comes from. But it is not real comfort. It's shallow, if even that. And so the catechism answer guides us to to, to fill in the gaps about this presumption that we live in a world filled with broken and wrong and difficult things. The answer is, that I am not my own. That's a strange answer, if you want to think about it for a little bit. Wouldn't it be better to say, God's got it. God is on his throne. What the, what the catechism answer brings us to is the application of that truth. That, that truth, I think, is the background for this answer, that because God reigns, because God is sovereign, because God is almighty, omniscient, and is able to, to, to do anything he wants because of the greatness of who he is, the amazing power that belongs to him, because that's true, it is applied to us and that we belong to him and not to the world and not to ourselves and not to the evil one but to this one who is filled with love and power and might. So that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, all compassing, all experiences, all possibilities of fear. There may be things in life that you are concerned about, money, future, relationship, you know, Think about your own life. Where are you? What are you praying for? Who are you praying for? What do those things indicate? They indicate a desire for things to be different. And they encompass all of life. We pray for our grandchildren. We pray for our parents. We pray for our aunts and uncles. We pray for this church. We pray for our government. We pray for ourselves. Because there's such need that's out there. So all of life, and even that ultimate event of life, death itself, 
which we face, we fear. We've got people in this congregation desperately ill. What are they facing? What is their hope? What is their comfort as they face that future that is ahead for them? That they are not their own. It's not up to me. In a way, it's not about me. It's not about me at all. It's about the one who owns me. The one who has adopted me. The one who has given me an inheritance. It is my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. This is where, if you had a book like this, and it's not here printed, but probably the book that Heath got this from, does have um, uh, scripture references to, to all the points. And, and if you need that, I want to encourage you to get that. Uh, but there are multiple passages that, where these thoughts come from. These are not just made-up thoughts. These are thoughts that, that combine what the scriptures teach. Just as Romans 14 that we read, none of us lives to himself or dies to himself. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 1 Corinthians 3, 23, and you are Christ. Titus 2, 14, we are a people of his own, for his own possession. You know, the, over and over again, these are descriptions in the scripture of who we are and how we relate to him and what he does for us and bringing us into himself with the consequence being that our sins are paid for we've been made right one of the counseling counseling uh, people that Hazel likes to learn from listen to I remember hearing this in one of the car trips that we were taking that, and particularly for you women, that probably within the first hour of waking up, and I don't think I'm exaggerating this number, that you probably have told yourself 500 things that are wrong about you as you look in the mirror. Men, it's probably more than that number. <laughs> Men, I don't know if they've done studies on that, but I think that's somewhat true of us too. How many times do you, on your own, silently, just say, what a dork. What a, what a goof I am. You know, what, what a lazy person. What are, you know, we are innately capable of self-condemnation and it's because of the fall because there is sin because we have fallen we have not been righteous none of us are righteous no not one we all stand in need of cleansing and forgiveness and so the scriptures tell us that 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 our debt 
has been fully paid. 100%. Not an iota left that we owe in obedience. 100% completely covered by the work of Christ. And when we come to this table later on this morning, that's part of what we celebrate. A lot of places call it the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's because it reminds us that we are to celebrate. It, it was a, at great cost and great pain for Christ to die on the cross. But because He did, I'm free. I'm acceptable. I am adoptable by God. I have been washed clean by the shedding of that blood. When, G, when, when God looks at me, He sees Jesus' righteousness, which is imputed, which is, means given to me. He sees Jesus and not my flaws, not my failures, not my sin, but the righteousness that is perfect in Christ. And so the, the catechism says, He has fully paid for all my sins, and He has set me free. He set me free from the tyranny of the devil. We have an adversary. You know what the scriptures call him? They, the scriptures call him the father of lies. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He twists the truth. I believe one of the things that, that is so difficult as we face the world around us is the, the idea of there are a lot of things that have an element of truth that sound right. You know, I don't want to pick on politicians, but you know, it's the most obvious at the moment where there's maybe a part of what they say is based in truth and reality, but a lot of what they say building off of that element of truth is distorted and, and used for, own, for their own purposes for their own self-aggrandizement or whatever it might be to, to have the power that they want. We have a liar who is our chief adversary who tells us lies about ourselves, who tells us lies about God. Did God surely say to Adam and Eve, did, did God really mean that? Is that what you thought he said? That's not what he said. It's the lying of the, of, the, of the devil that we have been in bondage to. That we've been set free from. We still hear the echoes of those accusations. And sometimes we even buy those lies. Because it meshes up often with the lies we're telling ourselves because of our sin. When we can come back to this place of our only comfort and life, knowing that everything's paid for, we are perfectly clean and acceptable to God. He loves us. He wants to spend eternity with me and with you. He's not tired of us. He's not sick of us. He's not disappointed in us. Because we are in Christ. 
We are not our own. If we were still our own, yes, he may have those thoughts about us. Yes, we would be in danger. But we're not. Because we're in Christ. We are in Christ. And Christ owns us. We have now put aside those things. You want to be free from the tyranny of the devil? You want to be free from the self-accusations of sin? Do you want to have that comfort in life? It's found only in Christ. As we lose our lives, that we might be found in Him. The catechism continues, he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. In the catechism, question 27 and 28 talks about providence. I love the doctrine of providence and the sovereignty of God. I can't imagine having a concept of God and relationship with him that doesn't include this. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't even know where to begin to understand life and things from God's perspective and from my own perspective. But the question 27 uh, says this, what do you understand by the providence of God? The answer is providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and rules them that leaf and blade, rain and doubt, drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact, Come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Question 28. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? If that's true, what's the comfort that comes from that? Answer. We can be patient when things go against us. I love it that that's the first part of the answer. Because that's so often the realities in which we live, that we feel like things aren't right. I may have told you the story of my three-year-old grandson, who will be four this month. And he, he knows how to work Apple TV already. I mean, if you know what I'm talking about, you can get the remote and do all this stuff and find this stuff. And every once in a while, there's that little spinning wheel. You know what I'm talking about? You know, it's loading or it's, it's trying to catch up with stuff. And what he would say is, it's not working! <laughs> Don't you want to say that about the life that we and the world that we live in? It's not working. And so the answer is we can be patient 
It's hard to teach a three-year-old to be patient as the wheel goes on and on and on. He basically says, reset, reset. <laughs> Which is what God has actually done. He has reset with the coming of Christ. But we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence, hope, surety, trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from His love all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. All of these questions and answers are worthy of some deep, deep thought. Jerry Bridges in his book, uh, Trusting God, has a chapter about how we need to view our employers. Do you view your employer as being guided by the hand of God? Most people, I think, view their employer as an adversary or someone or somebody or something to be dealt with. That even if you are fired by that employer, that doesn't come outside the bounds of God's providence and sovereignty. It may be the the entryway into the next thing. I had a, a mentor of mine, Bob Wilcox in North Carolina, as a pastor who got fired a lot. <laughs> so every time he lost his job, he'd go get a steak dinner because he was excited about what God was going to do next. Because he understood this idea of the providence and the sovereignty of God and that all things work together for good, and we cannot be moved, we cannot move or be moved apart from the fatherly hand and care of God upon us. We are not our own. Because I believe, this is the catechism, back to the catechism, because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on, to live for him. I want to close with Psalm 23. It may sound a little strange. Psalm 23 and also Galatians 2.20. But Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This is a picture of a God who loves me and he owns me. He is in charge and in control. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Not for us. There's nothing we can do to be righteous before him. But when we are led to be righteous, it's to his glory. Because he has changed our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. 
He has given us a new spirit, a new mind. He has led us to that place where we can think anew about things. We have our minds renewed. That's all to God's glory, not to our credit. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A lot of times, and, and not inappropriately, but a lot of times we interpret that passage to talk about when we personally are facing death. I think it's true. But I think there's an application that goes beyond that. It's when you have a loved one who's approaching death, someone you care about who's at risk of dying or has already died. We are constantly in this life, in this world, living in the shadow of the valley of death. Until Christ comes again and renews the world, we are always in the valley of the shadow of death. It is part of the curse. And until death, the last enemy, is cast into the pit, we continue to live in the valley of the shadow of death. But we're not alone. You are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Have you ever said that about yourself? That my cup overflows? It's a hard thing to do. Because there's always this sense of, well, if I still got these kids that are messed up. <laughs> I still got this... Financial burden that I don't know how I'm going to get out of. I still have this animosity with my husband or my wife or my sibling, whatever it might be, that just isn't going right. How can I say my cup is overflowing? But when we stop and consider what God has done for us and the comfort he has provided us and how he has led such a one as me through the valley of the shadow of death as a child, being reared in an environment full of chaos and violence upon me and upon others around me. And yet God has brought me out of that. How can I not say my cup overflows? My cup overflows because of the incredible love and mercy and power and grace of God. And then the final verse here, verse 6. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He's not talking about death here. He's talking about right now. And that word follow me, the root means to pursue, to chase after. Goodness and mercy are chasing after you coming from God toward you. They can't wait to catch up with you. Surely goodness and mercy are following us all the days of our lives because we are not our own. We belong to Christ and He has died for us. We have a new life. 
we can find comfort in life. And that verse concludes, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our only comfort. Now and then is because we've lost control of ourselves. And we've been bought and redeemed, purchased. We've been adopted by another. We are not our own. We don't own ourselves. We can't control ourselves. We can't do anything for ourselves that is good and comforting. It all has, come, has to come from God. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I preach this sermon, one, to lead us to this table, because it is the tangible reminder that Jesus died on the cross, gave his body as a substitute for my penalty that rightly is mine, my sin, that God needed to punish. He punished Christ instead, in my stead. And he shed his blood to wash, to cleanse, to purify, to, to bring us to the place of being clothed properly, to be in the presence of the king. Clothed properly with the glory of Christ so that we can be in the presence of the eternal father. But I also preach this sermon because it's a testimony, I believe, of what God has done in my life. It's still imperfect. There are many times when I doubt the things that I've just spoken to you. They don't seem real. They seem far away. The lies seem to be louder, seem to be truer. Self-doubt, self-condemnation. The struggles of the world, the fears, the fears that are there every day for safety, for loved ones, for what's about to happen tomorrow. Those things can crowd into our hearts and minds. And I want to share with you that I think an important way to deal with those is to be reminded you are not your own. Jesus, you are in Christ. He has bought you. Rest in him. Rest and be at peace in him. Heavenly Father, help us in our weakness and the struggles that we have and the challenges of the world and the evil one around us to come back to this wonderful truth 
that our only comfort in life and in death is that we are not our own, but belong to you. Thank you for your goodness and mercy that they chase us every day, wanting to catch up with us, to show us your goodness and mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.